So we're starting a new series uh, on this letter to the Colossians. The Apostle Paul wrote this letter. Um, we know that it must have been before AD 60 because the city of Colossae was actually destroyed by an earthquake in AD 60 and was actually never rebuilt. Um, when we come to this letter, it's, it's a fascinating letter because Paul has never actually met these people. Um, as Josh just read, he knows about them from Epaphras, who you might say is a member of Paul's team, so to speak. Epaphras is the one who has brought the gospel there and then brought a report um, to Paul. And um, what also is interesting when you remember and think about this letter is actually this letter was written before any of the four gospels. Now that's interesting because as we get later into chapter one, this letter has what we call a very high Christology. Uh, in other words, the, the view that Paul lays out here of who Jesus is, um, is extraordinary, particularly if you've been one who's been taught in a lot of you know, classes on like understanding the Bible in colleges and whatnot, uh, often will give this impression that the idea that Jesus was Lord or Jesus was divine was something that evolved later. Um, but actually, the, this uh, letter and other early letters like this, appearing even before the Gospels were written, gives us great insight um, into the early church and into kind of the, the roots of our faith. Uh, that call to worship was particularly appropriate because in, in many ways, this letter is a testimony uh, from one generation to another. Uh, I don't know how many generations there are between AD 50 or so and today, but it's a lot and the gospel is still bearing fruit all over the world. It's a remarkable thing. Now, when we look at this letter, the first thing I want to, um, I don't want us to rush past this. It's amazing that there is a letter to the Colossians. And I don't mean just because of all the difficulties of preserving uh, a document written from you know, the middle of the first century, but it's amazing that the gospel has come to this group of people, non-Jewish people, in the first century, subjects of the Roman Empire in a part of the world that is now uh, present-day Turkey. They've come to faith in Christ. They identify themselves with this fledgling Christian movement. And there's really no good reason why this should have been expected to happen. I think because... So many of us have just grown up knowing that there is such a thing as Christianity and there is such a thing as the Bible. We can sometimes take for granted, like, where did all this come from? Why, why does this exist? There's a, a wonderful uh, church historian uh, named Larry Hurtado, H-U-R-T-A-D-O. Um, he's explored this question in many of his books. Um, if you want to read more about this, I recommend in particular his little book called Why Would Anyone Become a Christian During the First Three Centuries? Why Would Anyone Become a Christian During the First Three Centuries? It's the kind of uh, title that professors give to lectures when they don't have a marketing department, I suppose. Uh, it's not a very catchy title, but it's an incredible book. Um, it's, a, it's a short little book. You could read it in a, in a long afternoon, actually. And here's what he argues. He says, you know, becoming a Christian in the first few centuries brought no social or economic benefit at all. In fact, it brought great costs socially, economically, and at times even brought physical torture and death. And yet, Christians became people, became Christians in droves 
in the first three centuries. And he says, as a historian, there must be a reason. There must be a reason. What he's talking about is the fact that in 100 AD, there were maybe 10,000 Christians in the world. By 300 AD, 200 years later, historians estimate there were 6 million Christians. And this was during a time of often intense persecution, right? Hurtado says, historians should ask why. And they haven't done that. In general, they haven't done that. Um, now, you might say, well, Islam also grew this fast. Yeah, except the difference is Islam grew by conquest. Christianity grew while being persecuted. And he thinks it's worth asking why this might have happened. In, in light of all the costs and all the disadvantages of becoming a Christian, what were the things that, that led to people embracing Christianity, right? Now, he goes through five reasons in his book. I won't go into all those except for the last point that he makes because it's so clearly seen here in Colossians. So he argues that it's important that we understand that Christianity had two unique offers in the ancient world that no other religion had ever had before. What are these two things? Well, Christianity offered communion, a love relationship with a transcendent God. The pagans, you know, not a pejorative term, but that means the people that don't worship, um, you know, the living God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, they had various ideas about the gods and religion, but it was always about appeasing the gods, trying to keep them from destroying you or harming you, okay? The Eastern religions couldn't love God or have a God who loved them because their idea of God was not personal. So the pagans had an idea of God that was personal. In fact, they were more human um, than, than we might think of God, certainly. And the Eastern religions didn't have the idea of a God that could love because God wasn't personal. So Christianity was actually unlike these other religions, so much so that one of the charges that was brought against Christians, one of the charges that led to them being put to death at times, was that they were atheists. Isn't that remarkable? They were often called atheists because they didn't worship the gods of the town, the gods of the guild, the gods of the family. You know, when you went anywhere, did almost anything in the Roman world, you were expected to offer up uh, offering, uh, incense, anything to the gods of this town, to the gods of the guild, to the gods of a household, even if you were invited over for dinner. And to not do so was not only incredibly offensive, but some would think that anything bad that happened was because you weren't doing what you were supposed to do to appease the gods, right? But Christianity offers communion with a transcendent God who loves. There'd never been anything like that in the history of the world. Christianity also offers assurance of salvation right now because of grace. So these other religions had ideas of salvation, but it was always something you hope to earn by your whole life. You hope that you've done enough good things and avoided enough bad things to at the end of, of life, when you faced a judgment of sorts, you would uh, be saved. And Christianity offers the solidity of knowing you're saved and assured now because of God's grace. And you see evidence of both these things in Paul's letter. There are things that he's thankful for. 
When we look at the beginning of this letter, verse 3, he says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. The hope. See, that's something that is solid and tangible, right? He begins by giving credit to God and his grace as the only sufficient explanation for the existence of this countercultural community in Colossae that has not only remained faithful to God in the midst of incredible pressure, but has shown love to all of God's people. That is, is one of the reasons Larry Hurtado also gets into, by the way, the fact that Christianity was the first multicultural religion. It wasn't just confined to one tribe or people group. And, and Paul is saying God is the one who should be getting all the credit and all the thanks for it. But let's dig into this a little more. What is this gospel that Paul is thankful for? I'll, just, I'll do this quickly, but I just want to point out a couple things. He says that it is faith in Christ. Look at verse 4. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. Faith in the Bible is not just a vague kind of sense of optimism that things will eventually get better. Faith is always directed towards something, actually someone, in this case, Christ Jesus. And it shows here that this faith in Christ Jesus has produced love for all of God's people. And understand, Jews and Gentiles did not like each other in the, in the ancient world. So Paul is giving thanks to God, not only for their faith, because God is the author and finisher of our faith, as uh, Paul says elsewhere, but also this love, this new remarkable love that they have for people that they wouldn't love otherwise. And he says in verse 5, it's because of your faith and your love for all the saints is because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. This hope is a tangible thing. It's not a feeling. It's a tangible thing. There is something laid up for them in heaven. It involves hearing the word of truth, the gospel. That's at the end of verse 5. Of this hope, he says, you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. So the gospel is regarded as being contained in this word of the truth. And notice this, verse 6, which has come to you. So it's something that you didn't just kind of wump up from inside. It's not something that you kind of found by looking inside your heart. It is something that has come to you from the outside. And it's alive and powerful. Look at what he says in verse 6. This gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood, there's this word, the grace of God in truth. So it's powerful. It's alive. It can be said to bear fruit because it's about the grace of God in truth. So Paul is Directing them. I, I love this. I think sometimes about how I learned to pray. It's worth thinking about even for yourself. How did you learn to pray? Often when we first become Christians, someone teaches us how to pray. And what Paul is doing here, for people that he's never met, he's saying, this is how I pray for you. And there are a lot of lessons that we can learn about prayer from this. In the beginning, we learned this lesson, that we thank God because God is the one who deserves all the credit if we are Christians, if there is a church that exists, because it doesn't come from nowhere, right? And, and this faith is not just a vague kind of faith. 
there's definite doctrinal content to it. The word truth is used several times, and so is this word grace central to what he's saying here, right? This is something, there's truth about something that's happened, something that has come to them for which God is to be praised and thanked. It's grace. But I, I want to point out this in particular. He says that we are to keep this hope that's been laid up for us connected to the God of grace. And, and Paul says that their faith in Christ and their love for others is specifically tied to this hope laid up for them in heaven. First Peter talks about this as well in chapter 1, about how we have um, this hope uh, laid up in heaven which can never perish, spoil, or fade. It's kept for us there, where we can't get at it to mess it up. Martin Luther famously called this hope an alien righteousness. had nothing to do with spaceships, but it, he meant it was a righteousness that belonged to another person that comes to us, that's given to us. And that literally is the heart of what they've heard in the word of truth, the gospel. That word gospel means literally good news that's come to them. So Paul thanks God for this hope, which has a definite shape and form, definite content. content. It's not nebulous, right? I think today so many people think about God working in a very vague way. But Paul says, no, God works through the apprehension of the truth of the gospel, which has real content. It's news about something that has happened. News about something that has happened. And in the first century, that word gospel was not a religious word. It was not a religious word. It was a word that was generally used about a military victory. A military victory that had huge implications for the people that heard about this victory, heard this announcement. That's a good, actually, sense of what this word gospel is all about, right? And so, as I said, Paul wants them to know what he prays for them. And he begins by saying, I always thank God for you. And, and that's what he's teaching us the first thing. I don't know about what you pray for or how you pray, but Paul teaches us, first and foremost, be thankful for the gospel itself. Later, down in verse 12, he repeats the same idea. He says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You see what Hurtado was talking about? The security, because something has happened, not because we've done something. Something has been done on our behalf. Paul says, you've been qualified. You didn't qualify yourself. You, it, it's like you get to, to run in this great race, but you didn't actually run the qualifying heat. Jesus did. And let me tell you, you've got the pole position if Jesus runs on your behalf, right? That's what Paul's saying. Do you see? He's thankful to God because God deserves all the thanks and all the praise, just as we sang in that song. And what he's done is solid and secure, and it puts us in a whole new position with regard to God. We have forgiveness. We have redemption. We have been transferred from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of his beloved Son, not because of what we've done, but because of his grace. He also says that the gospel is bigger than us. It's about a kingdom. 
And I don't know how many of us, if, if somebody asked you, what does it mean to be a Christian? I've almost never heard somebody say verse 13 and verse 14. Well, to be a Christian means I've been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. I think there's something instructive in what Paul says here, particularly in our North American context, where so many of us think of believing the gospel as like this little personal story about me and Jesus. Now, that's precious. Jesus does die for particular people, right, as their substitute. It's clear in the Bible. But don't ever limit what God has done to just saving souls in like a little personal, tiny little way. Paul talks about how we've been transferred from one kingdom to another kingdom. That's huge. And it has huge implications for the way we pray and for what we thank God for. Next thing I want to point out is in verse 9. <laughs> I love this. This is so counter the way I think most of us pray. Most of us pray when things are bad. But look at what Paul says in verse 9. He says, and so, and, and the so points us back to, because God has done all these things, right? And so from the day we heard, remember he's not met these people, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, and on and on, I'm going to get to that. Notice, don't, don't pass by this. He's so encouraged by what he's heard about the way the gospel has come to them, the way it's bearing fruit, and he says, so because of that, because things are going so well, I've not ceased to pray for you. Paul teaches us to pray when things look good. When do you pray most fervently? Most of us, it's when things are looking bad. But how different was Paul's practice? Again, he says, it's for this reason. What reason? The fact that things are going so well. Because of his encouragement that the gospel was working powerfully in this church, that's why he prays constantly for them. And it's worth asking, why might this be the case? I know this is a bit of speculation, but I don't think it's, it's too far off the mark. I want to suggest that Paul is praying for them because Paul believes that we should never take the work of the gospel for granted. He knows what we're up against. And he knows that the existence of this church is a miracle. And it's something that we want to pray that God continues to work and do. You know, I think about City Church, even singing that song, Thanksgiving Praise, and uh, Natalie talked about it's kind of a City Church classic. Uh, not all of you have been part of City Church since the beginning, um, but I really encourage you to talk to those who have been around from the beginning and hear the story of how the Lord birthed this church. In, in a lot of ways, it involves a tornado and sort of like turning a spotlight in some ways on East Nashville, which then, you know, connects to people moving over there. Um, you think about Craig Brown, the founding pastor, who in the first year planning a church gets a brain tumor. This is not the story that we would write. This is not the way you lay out your plans. And yet, whenever I think about City Church, I think about all the obstacles and the fact that the existence of this church is a miracle. And now we have a pandemic as we're looking for a new pastor, right? God is good. And even when we are so thankful for what God's been doing, and we should be, we should pray all the more fervently, even when things are looking good, because we should never take for granted the existence of his church. 
That's true of the church in general, but it's particularly true of your church. What else does he teach us? Well, he teaches us to pray for the continued work of the gospel. Now, I could do a whole sermon on this thing about knowing the will of God, but notice he doesn't want them just to know the will, um, knowledge of his will, verse 9, just for the heck of it, just so that they would feel more in control of their lives. That's, I think, the way a lot of us think about knowing God's will, and it's kind of this obsession of people today. I want to know God's will. Should I do this? Should I major in that? Should I study that? Should I work here? Should I move here? Should I marry this person? Um, all of those things matter to God, but the focus in the Bible on knowing God's will is the way it's addressed here. Look at this in verse 9 and then connecting into verse 10. He says, I pray that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as, for this purpose, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Why does Paul pray that they would know the will of God? So that they would be able to discern the truth. It's particularly important in a place like Colossae where they are surrounded by all kinds of other ideas. In a lot of ways, as we're going to see in chapter 2, he's concerned that they would not be misled by false teaching. And, you, and, and he's already talking about how he's praying for them that they would have understanding, not to figure out like, you know, you know should I major in this or study that or you know, move here or do that. Like, no, he wants them to have an understanding of God's will so that they could live in a life, uh, a manner worthy of Christ. He's talking about sanctification. He's talking about living a life of holiness. And that is always the focus of the Bible on knowing God's will. Sometimes college students, you know, I work with students and sometimes they'll ask me, I'm just really praying for God's will to understand God's will for my life. And I'll say, well, you know, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, the apostle Paul says, and this is God's will for you, that you would flee sexual immorality. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, work on that. And when you got that down, come back, I'll give you some more God's will. You know, so I don't think sometimes we really want to know God's will so that we could live in a manner worthy of him. In some ways, I think we want to know God's will so that we wouldn't have to trust him and actually live by faith rather than by sight, right? But these people need discernment. They live in the middle of a culture that, that is you know, putting forth all these other ideas. I, I would argue that we desperately need this today as well so that we could avoid every fad and gimmick Every idea that we see posted on social media, run after this, run after that, you need this, you need that. The letter to the Colossians is a letter teaching us about the formative power of gratitude for what God has already done and praying that he would continue to work. Well, what else do we learn from how Paul prays? A couple things. He says that we're to pray for the work of the gospel, not just temporal blessings. Again, in verse 9, He's not saying, and so from the day we heard, we keep praying that you would have this and this and this. Now, again, it's not bad. We shouldn't be shamed out of praying for temporal things that we need. Our, even as we just prayed in the Lord's Prayer, the way Jesus taught us to pray, we are to pray for daily bread. Of course, we're to pray first for the kingdom, and we're to be reminded of who it is that we're praying to. But we are it's fine and, and even encouraged to pray for daily bread, for temporal things, right? But Paul says the focus of his prayer is that they would live lives worthy of the Lord, bearing fruit, growing in the knowledge of God. He prays that they would know God's will so that they could live holy lives, so that they could know God and his will. 
And I would just say this, if 80%, 90% of our prayers are about travel mercies and health concerns, again, those are totally appropriate. But how often do we pray for the kinds of things that Paul is praying for here? For our need of more understanding of his grace and more of his work in our lives and in our church. And then I point out this as well. He's praying for more than just his immediate family and friends. Remember, he's praying for people he's never met. And he has this firm understanding that it's about a kingdom. Okay? What does that mean? Well, it means that our prayers should stretch us beyond just thinking about ourselves and our little world. God's kingdom is on the move. And the question we need to ask is, does our prayer life reflect that we're part of a kingdom movement? Now, don't misunderstand me. I think, do you, um, do you think about the fact that not only is there a kingdom on the move, but God has put you in a particular place, particular time, space, in, in some ways given you front row seats to see where the kingdom of God needs to come. So without like sort of telling you to not pray for the particular things that are right in front of you, that where God in his providence has said, you know, you're, you work with these people. I don't. I don't know these people. I don't know where God's kingdom needs to come in that situation. You do right? And even in the prayer that Cullen led us in, we had good examples of that very thing, right? But we always want to be reminded that prayer should go beyond just what we see uh, in front of us because we're part of a kingdom movement, right? And then uh, he says that we're to pray continually. Pray continually. Now, this doesn't mean, you know, that um, every single second of the day. I don't think that's the point. I think he's talking about the regular practice of praying, not just when it hits him, not just when he feels like it. It seems that it's a disciplined practice. But again, he's telling them about this because he wants to teach them how to pray, how, what they're to be thankful for, and that it should be a regular experience. This is why I talk about the formative power of gratitude, right? He, he tells them, I, I love this, verse um, 11, he wants them to, to be able to you know, know the knowledge of God's will with spiritual wisdom and understanding. That's the end of verse 9. Dump down. Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Why? So that you could have endurance and patience with joy. He wants them to have endurance and the joy that comes from knowing the gospel is true. I just want to say this. Prayer is not a technique to find joy by denying the painful reality of living in a broken, fallen world. Don't forget all the stuff we've been talking about from Ecclesiastes. Prayer is not the way to sort of close our eyes to the brokenness and just focus on Jesus. No, prayer is actually um, that we would have patience and joy in the midst of it. Remember what Ecclesiastes teaches us. Thanking God for the very gifts that come to us from the hand of God, even in the midst of the frustration, right? What, what Paul's teaching us to pray for here is for the perspective of, of the gospel to bear on all our circumstances. Prayer helps us see how the gospel transforms the way we look at everything. And that has so much to do with praying first for the kingdom before we pray for daily bread. When you pray for the kingdom first, it changes the way you pray for daily bread. It does. Well, I don't have time to talk more about that. Let me just move on to the last couple points. We are to pray to the same God that we thank. 
the sovereign God. Paul prays big because he believes in a big God. I think about um, J.B. Phillips, who wrote a, a book in the late 60s called Your God is Too Small. Your God is Too Small. I think that's one of the maladies of the Christian church today, particularly the evangelical Bible-believing church, that our God is often too small. Paul prays big because he prays to a big God. He prays to a God who deserves all the credit. He prays to a God who can continue to work miracles for the Colossians because God is powerful. And I would say this, prayer is fueled by knowing the character of God. One of my favorite verses about prayer is in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6. Peter says this, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may lift you up, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. What a combination. We have a mighty God, a mighty God with a mighty hand who cares for us. If that doesn't encourage you to pray, I don't know what can. So often, I think we think we need more, but we have a God with a mighty hand who cares for us. We have a God who has qualified us, who has delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. That's why when we gather for worship, we regularly offer praise to God, not because he's so insecure and he needs it so he feels good about himself, not at all. It's because we were made to worship God. And, and worship, as that quote from Rodney Clapp that was the reflection quote, quote reminds us, worship is seeing through common sense. And Rodney Clapp talks about how in the first century, everybody would have thought that the Romans ruled the world. But in the book of Revelation, which is really a book of liturgy, a book of worship, John invites us to open our eyes and see more. Not to deny the Romans. John, when he wrote the book, was himself exiled on the island of Patmos. But he invites us to open our eyes and see Jesus on the throne. See Jesus, the one who can open the scroll. Jesus, the lamb who was slain, who has secured our place in his kingdom. And Colossians is a great letter for reminding us of all that we have to be thankful for. And it actually will inoculize us to all of these other religious hucksters that want to come along and say, you need this, you need to do more of this, you need to do more of this, you need this. Colossians says, no, you need to be firmly grounded in what you already have, firmly grounded in what you already have because of what God has done. Give thanks where thanks is due. It's a formative practice of the Christian church, and it's a good thing. Let's pray together.